Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, July the 30th, 2023, the hottest month on record. I don't think many of us will be mourning the end of the month. Hopefully, August will be slightly chillier. Um, yesterday, we did a fascinating show with a man called Lloyd Devereaux Richards. He was a, or is a, a writer, someone who spent 12 years on his first book, um, uh, a mystery thriller. Um, didn't do very well. Came out in 2012. Then uh, it was his first book. Then his daughter TikToked. Um, a 16-second video suggests uh, about how, how her father spent 14 years writing a book. And the book became a huge sensation. It went, as the New York Post suggested, from flop mm. to top. Uh, so it's a remarkable story. Her, uh, Lloyd's daughter is Marguerite. They were both on the show. They've done the rounds. They've been on the Today Show. And this book has transformed their lives, their relationship. It, it's quite a narrative. It's, uh, it's the dream of writers to go from flop to top to suddenly become an overnight sensation. Uh, my guest today isn't quite Lloyd Devereaux Richards, but she also is a first-time writer who's had a great deal of success with her first book, Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm. Um, it's been acclaimed. It came out last year. And it's just been published uh, as a paperback this week. It got uh, acclaimed Best of 2022 by Kirkus, People, NPR, Chicago Public Library, Booklist, blah, blah, blah. So it's done very well. It's transformed her life. And I know she has some thoughts, Laura, Laura Worrell, who uh, is talking to us from Los Angeles, about believing in one's first book. Laura, congratulations on Thank the book. You. Um, you. You're not quite Lloyd Devereaux Richards. I'm not sure if you've heard that story. Uh, yeah. You don't have a daughter who promoted your work. but Unfortunately, this book, yeah. <laughs> uh, this book has uh, transformed your life as a first-time book, hasn't it? It really has. And I love Lloyd's story. Uh, I am also, that's my story, right? I've been toiling away at this dream, at these projects, Um didn't take me 12 years to write Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm, but it is my fifth novel. It's the fifth book that I've actually written. So I understand that journey of, you know, having this goal, spending so much time working toward it, and then feeling like it's a failure, because that's what happened with my first four books. And so this book, 25 years after I tried to publish my first book, finally getting, you know, a fairly decent reception, one I'm incredibly grateful for, has been absolutely wonderful. Um, I joke that I constantly thank everybody involved and everybody who invites me to speak about it because it's been such a long, pretty hard journey. It's, it's really the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and will probably ever do. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful for all of the um, attention that the book has gotten and am inspired by stories like Lloyd's because we often hear the stories about writers who, you know, go to MFA programs that are very 
prestigious or, or popular and meet the right agent and everything rolls on from there. We don't hear as often about the stories, you know, of the stories of writers who really have to struggle a bit before it comes together. You know, uh, the stories of people who went to these top mm-hmm. schools, these MFA programs, um, you you went to them. Uh, you attended residences at the Breadloaf mm-hmm. Writers Conference and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Do you think these kinds of things are overrated? Would you would you advise uh, an aspiring writer, someone who is on their second or third failed mm-hmm. novel or book, to, to waste their time with these professional programs? Can one be taught to write, Laura? So that's a really great question, and I have a lot of different thoughts about it. And I'm going to come at it from two directions. The first direction is craft. Um, From a craft perspective, I ultimately did go to an MFA. It wasn't necessarily one of the prestigious ones. I really enjoyed being there and and learned a lot. Um, But it wasn't one of the top necessarily. And so, but I went because I did have four failed books and felt like there's something that I'm missing. I must have a blind spot. There's something about writing that I'm not getting. Uh, I've written four books. I have an undergraduate degree in creative writing among other disciplines. This isn't happening. And so from a craft perspective, I went back to school because I felt like clearly I need to learn to manage the skill. I need to learn what it is about constructing a narrative that I'm not getting. And I do feel like my MFA program showed me how to do that in part because that's why I went. I wasn't necessarily thinking I want to be in the hot spot and and meet all the important people and just have this pedigree that comes with having an MFA, regardless of where you go. I really need to figure out what I'm doing wrong. And so from a craft perspective, I don't think that there's any Uh, disadvantage to doing everything you can, including going to school, to try to improve, uh, improve your skills. I do feel like we all have, you know, natural talent and and voices that are our own. uh, And hopefully what a program will do or what classes will do is help you, as I said, kind of manage yours. Um, and then as far as a business perspective, because I, I often like to talk about this, you know, there's a difference between you sitting with your coffee and writing your story and trying to craft your tale and bring yourself and your voice into it versus trying to access a market. And I do feel like part of the reason that I eventually got a book into the world is because I pounded the pavement I did go to classes. I did meet people. I went to residencies like Bread, Bread Loaf and Tin House because you do, I think, to an extent, have to network, have to know people, have to understand the business. So I don't think it's a waste of time. I think it's unfortunate that these programs are so expensive so that they can become sort of exclusive or at the very least limit the number of people who have access to them. There are probably amazing writers, for sure. There are amazing writers in the country who can't afford to go to these programs and may not have access to the people who can further their careers if they were to meet them 
at these programs. So I do encourage people to, if they want to, uh, try to, to go to these programs. I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I know plenty of writers who have books in the world who didn't go to these programs. Laura, um, the book, the novel, um, is about two subjects, about jazz music and about love, mm -hmm. disappointments in love. I wonder, uh, picking up on that last theme, um, m most of us, we certainly don't get schooled in love. We don't get schooled in how to build and develop and perhaps leave relationships. And of course, jazz music is famous because the greats didn't go to college. They didn't study music, and that's its defining quality. Um, perhaps you might, uh, you might um, imagine what jazz music could have been had these people been formally trained. Would it have been richer, or would it have undermined the whole enterprise, the whole school, the whole tradition? Well, um, I would say that I would be nervous about answering that question with any authority. I, I don't feel like an authority on jazz. Well, be I, a jazz musician. You, you don't need authority. You have my permission. Well, I think what I what the undercurrent of that question is, is what schooling, schooling may rob creative people or artists of. And I do think whether you are an actor or a writer or a musician, including a jazz musician, that there is a risk if you study in a traditional sense, in an educational environment, that they say this about MFA programs, right? That very often, depending on the school you're going to or the faculty that you're working with, you're going to learn the way that that school or that faculty member believes you should play jazz, write a novel, etc. And so there is a risk of um, whatever is uh, unique, whatever is uh, kind of uh, nebulous or whatever you want to call it about your particular voice, that you're going to lose some of that if you try to fit it into uh, a more prescriptive idea of how that art form needs to be expressed. Um, so perhaps, but I also feel like with, with jazz musicians, my understanding the, of them through the research that I've done and the musicians that I've met, I, I taught at the Berklee College of Music, so I met a lot of musicians and I tried to distinguish in my own way what were some of the differences between the musicians who were playing the different genres of music? And I feel like those musicians who are attracted to jazz, maybe they're more apt because they're attracted to jazz and the, um, the looseness, the expansiveness, the freedom of jazz might not necessarily lose themselves because they were attracted to an art form that expected of them to be able to improvise and to bring something special. So I kind of look at it like the writers that I do know who went to MFA programs or did go to school to, to you know, hone their craft, those writers who really did have that very organic, uh, free voice didn't necessarily lose it. 
They just learned a little bit more how to talk about it and how to structure it. I feel like that that was the benefit for me uh, in, in schooling is that I, I had this, we'll call it talent. You know, we all, everybody who practices the arts, we have some kind of talent and I needed to learn how to use it, how to shape it into something that others could access, but still not lose, or to me, for, for me, not to lose what was distinctive about my voice. And I hope and believe that I did that. So I like to think that these jazz musicians, if they, those who, who weren't schooled, um, if they were, that they wouldn't lose that. Um, I don't know whether they would be doing something more interesting or not, but I do feel those musicians who we really hold up uh, did something pretty special, uh, regardless of, of how they yeah, learned, it, how they trained. They certainly did do something very, as you say, very special. You, you wrote an interesting piece for Lit Hub uh, in February of this year on publishing Wild Black and all the issues associated with that. What it seems to me about jazz is its, is its core paradox is on the one hand, it appears as if it as the most quintessential of all American arts, the thing that's uniquely American and reflects all the innovation, the potential, uh, the spontaneity of America. And yet, of course, um, it's really the, the property of black Americans um, who were enslaved. How would you make sense of all that? And particularly in the context of your book, which is not a, a book really about race or racism, but certainly about the relations between the sexes. That's a lot to unpack. Um, I guess what I would say is there were a lot of reasons that I, I picked jazz. And most of the reason that I did is because of the complexity, the nuance, the dynamism of the music itself. Uh, as far as I do write about race in this book, uh, I wanted to do it in a way that was subtle. And so of course, there is an awareness for myself as an author, um, hopefully in the book, that jazz is unique um, in that it is rooted in um, an American history uh, that is complicated. And I think, you know, very often I describe my reasons for, for, for circus playing jazz as about the music and the mastery of the craft. But one of the other reasons that I chose jazz is because it's, a, it's an, uh, genre of music that a lot of people believe isn't around anymore. Um, I've often said that when I tell people or when I was writing the book and then when I was getting ready to publish the book that um, he's a jazz musician, people would often ask me, when does it take place? Because I think that there's this belief that jazz musician, jazz music is, is old, it's outdated. Nobody plays it anymore. Nobody listens to it anymore. And so this idea that he's playing an, um, a form of music that people aren't listening to anymore is part of his own sort of tragedy, his own story, his own quest, right? But it's also potentially, probably too subtly, uh, or at least very subtly reflecting, you know, a, a, a history um, that we're, we are, especially at this time, trying to, to look away from. 
um, not giving it uh, the attention that it probably needs. Uh, coming back to this idea of a dying art form, as you said, you've written about it, you've thought mm -hmm. about it, um, and, and you read another piece uh, or, or, or something excerpted on LitHub about devotion to a dying art form. Um, do you think it is dying, Jazz, or is it just an idea that will never die? I think it's an idea that will never die, but for sure it doesn't hold the place in the culture that it used to. I mean, well, I mean, I, I'm a little different. I do know people who could name some contemporary jazz musicians or even know the, the, the classic jazz musicians. But I think generally speaking, I mean, there was a time where, where jazz musician was as popular as, as hip hop and pop music is, it was pop music, right? People went to, to see jazz musicians the way people are seeing, maybe not Taylor Swift, but some of our, our big artists. And so that's not happening anymore. Um, to that extent, but people are still playing jazz. People are still going to jazz. People are still studying jazz. Like I said, at Berkeley, uh, there were students who wanted to, to be jazz musicians. Uh, but I do think, yeah, it's not, it doesn't hold the place in the culture that it used to. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, in part, I think it's, and I'm just sort of working through this as we speak, but I, I feel like the, the complications, the attention that the listener has to give to jazz, um, the space for uh, uncertainty that jazz requires uh, isn't something that I think in, in our contemporary culture we have learned to do, we have learned to appreciate as listeners and, and audience. I think pop music, as much as I, there's a lot of pop music that I love, I feel a little out of the generation of the, the contemporary music that people are listening to right now. There isn't necessarily, I don't wanna say that it's formulaic, but there is, we, we know what to expect from it. It hits the notes that we expect it to hit. We've learned those rhythms. We've learned those chord patterns and structures. Even if you had known nothing about music, you know where that chord pattern is gonna go and end up. And I think with jazz uh, to the, not even the untrained ear, but the ear that has not attempted to be open to it, it just sounds messy to a lot of people. And when you allow yourself to really listen to what's happening, you recognize that there are patterns within it and that there is a structure that's accessible. Even to, you know, the more avant-garde jazz, there's something for you to grasp onto and follow. But I don't think that the contemporary listener of music is as aware of that or has been introduced to jazz in a way that this is accessible. I think it's similar with classical, right? Classical and jazz music, music we learn is... Um, maybe an elite art form that you as a regular listener of music is not necessarily going to access and there may not even be a reason for you to do it. And so I think that's one of the reasons that jazz doesn't hold the place that it used to. And I think it's unfortunate for a lot of reasons, one of which is I think are a lot of people would like jazz if they kind of sat with it and allowed it to do what it does. Uh, Laura on Friday did a show with Warren Zanes, very distinguished music writer. He has a new book out on the making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Springsteen, of course, was deeply affected by, uh, if not jazz music, certainly post-jazz music by black music in America. Do, do you feel in some ways, and, and also by Elvis, who of course has been accused of appropriating the entire 
African-American tradition. Do you, do you think, in a sense, popular music has appropriated jazz without recognizing it, without paying its due? Well, I mean, I think that there's a history in this country of Black music in all of its forms, including hip-hop now, um, being appropriated by, you know, white artists and that's a discussion that I, I find very interesting and important and longer. But what I will say here is those musicians who, to me, acknowledge um, the history of the music that they are performing and profiting from are the ones that I, uh, I admire. Those that don't seem to, uh, to recognize or even be aware, let alone acknowledge that they're playing an art form that is historically, I mean, I feel the same way about the, the moment we had maybe in the 90s where um, sort of salsa, Lat Latino music was, Latin music was really popular and sort of watered down and people who knew a lot about it. I don't know a lot about it, but I knew people who knew a lot about it or sort of felt like, you know, this is not just a trend this is a music that's steeped in, in a culture and a history. And it's very frustrating when you appreciate that music, particularly when you are of the culture who, who makes it, to see it become commercialized and practiced by people who don't have that appreciation. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with people, uh, with musicians who play black music, uh, whether it's hip hop, whether it's jazz, whether it's R&B, who, uh, have that awareness, have that appreciation and, and make that uh, acknowledgement sort of publicly. But those who just kind of take it and, and pass it off as their own, that's, that's a challenge to, uh, to, to be happy with. Laura, the, the novel is not really about the intellectual allure of jazz and of music. It's about the physical allure of jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. What is it about musicians and perhaps jazz musicians in particular that make them, at least in your mind, or at least in the novel, so alluring, so seductive and so ultimately dangerous? Well, um, I think that, I mean, when I talk about musicians, you know, obviously throughout my life, I have had a lot of female friends, married or otherwise, and pretty much every woman, especially that I've known, has had some kind of painful crush on a musician, whether it's jazz, rock. Uh, there's something about playing an instrument or singing, uh, especially I think when you see a man do it. Um, and of course I'm walking on that binary now, but to, to, to use it to make my point, you're allowed to walk on, on that binary <laughs> on my show, Laura. You okay. have my permission. Thank you. Um, the idea being that we're not always, well, I'll put it this way. When you see a man create, there's something that's really attractive about that because there is the possibility, if not the promise, that he is accessing some deeper core of vulnerability and emotion, sensitivity that we don't always get to see men express. And so there is that attraction to the creative artist, um, I think for that reason. But with music, we get to participate in 
his creation, right? We get to move, we, we're listening, our senses are alight, right, as he's playing. And so not only are we enjoying, but we are participating in the creation of his art. And there's something very sensual and erotic about music. We can, we've, we've all sort of agreed upon that, I think, uh, as, a, as a culture. And so watching, listening to uh, a man, whether or not he's attractive, play music is something that I think is really very compelling for a lot of women. I remember being at this really small pub in Boston where I used to live, where I wrote this book. It was a really tiny place, but the guy who owned it was Scottish and he really loved music. So he would have musicians come and play every Thursday or something. And there was one band, it wasn't even a jazz band, but there was this marginally attractive guy playing a guitar, but he played it with such passion that we were all like, is anybody else like sweating? And it was, it wasn't just like us being, oh, he's so cute. It was like, whatever he is experiencing as he's playing this music, it was sexual. It was very erotic and it was very uh, engaging for us. So I think that, that, that musicians have a physicality when they're performing and because they're creating something that we are directly physically engaging with, it can be so much more compelling. And I think with jazz musicians, of course, you know, not everybody's gonna be excited by a jazz musician. But I think the, the added attraction to a jazz musician, at least it has been for me and a lot of the women I know who, who like jazz musicians, is that there's an awareness of the level of skill and attention, regardless of whether you do actually go to school to improve your craft, what you have to do, the attention you have to give and focus you have to give to your your art is so intense for jazz musicians. If you want to reach any level of, of mastery, that is also something that I think is, is really compelling. Um, and so that was one of the reasons, you know, from the very beginning, when I had the idea for this book, there was no doubt in my mind that Circus Palmer, the male character is a musician and he was a jazz musician from the get-go. And those are basically the reasons why yeah, uh, then we have education again. I mean, quite literally, of course, mm -hmm. I guess you're suggesting someone might like to be that guitar being picked or mm -hmm. played. Uh, but there, isn't there something more here in that maybe the seduction is that you want to become the music, especially the jazz music, because it's also spontaneous mm -hmm. and unique. Mm -hmm. um, is that one of the great seductions of simply wanting to be turned into art I think or maybe that, the relationship becomes art I think that there is something to that I think exactly what you said I think I, I remember I was this is sort of related I was I met a, a, a guy who was a ceramics artist and um, I was also with with some female friends and none of us were particularly attracted to him but then he started making a bowl with his hands and we were all mm. like I would like to be that bowl so for sure there's an idea that whatever this this man is doing with this music with the instrument in particular as well as how how this art sounds I would like to 
feel that way, right? I would like him to do that to me. I would like to, to have that, you know, sensual, sexual, erotic, romantic exchange sound or look or feel like this person's art does. I think that that's part of it. Um, and I think very often, unfortunately, I, I actually just wrote about this. We'll see if it's published. Sometimes I think women do live vicariously um, through their their partners or or their the choice their romantic uh, choices the uh, love interests, which is unfortunate. I don't think that they should do that. I think they should try. We should try to um, express those um, desires and ways in the world ourselves. But I do think that that's part of it. I think that there's something about art and artists regardless of their gender, that allows them to experience life and inhabit the world in their own bodies in ways that are so enriching for other people. And I think that's why there is an attraction to creative people um, because it's, it is in a lot of ways, and I'm an artist, so this is how I feel. I, living as a creative person uh, experiencing and seeing the world through the eyes of, of, of an artist to me is, is a lot more interesting than, than a more conventional path. And so I think that those of us who are attractive to creative people, that that for sure is part of it, that I want to inhabit that, that world. I want to inhabit the world the way that you do. I want to experience life the way that, that you do. I want to hear this music the way that you do. Um, and so for sure, I think that that's part of it as well. Speaking of vicariousness, uh, you you gave an interview to the the Los Angeles Times saying that uh, you never gave up on writing, which I mm -hmm. guess is your first love or mm -hmm. your primary love now. But you did give up on love itself. Was mm -hmm. the act of writing this book a form of love? Was it your way of uh, vicariously experiencing romance without all the pain involved? You know, no, it's funny. I was literally last night uh, just talking to a friend about what we get from writing. And I was saying to her, I don't try to understand myself through writing. I don't try to, or what I get from writing is not an understanding of self. It's not a vicarious living. Um, it's It's really... A, an opportunity for me to understand life and other people and situations. I do feel emotionally engaged, particularly in this book. I, there's a character who's a girl. She's 14, 15 years old, um, Circus's daughter. And when I wrote some of her scenes, I felt very emotionally invested and touched and even teared up at one point because of something that I was doing to her over the course of the plot. But very often when I write, it's, it's up here. I'm, it's, it's an intellectual exercise. And so it is a labor of love for sure. Writing for sure has been the love of my life. Um, but it's not necessarily an opportunity to express uh, what I would be expressing romantically if I had the opportunity. Um, and I have found since the book came out that giving up on love, which is a great headline, but not necessarily what the experience was, um, has been a lot easier. There's a real satisfaction in 
reaching your goals and, and having your dreams come true. Um, it's been really, uh, my life just feels, I feel very, and I'm in, L in LA, so I say things like this now, I'm very at peace, right? With, but isn't with that I ironic? You, 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 the, the book is really about why unavailable men are so irresistible by being an author and by writing about giving up on love, haven't you yourself become almost a character out of the book? Have you become unavailable and of men since the book came out, particularly it's a book about romance, mm -hmm. do they treat you differently, especially if they've read the book? You know what men, when men treat me not even differently. I think men have always treated me this way. I think one of the, pieces of feedback that I've gotten about the book is that the male character, and again, the, the, the point of the book is to focus on the women. So the book in, is really about the women characters and their experience with this male character as they try to love or at least just have you know fun with him and how they feel they're treated and whether or not they're going to, what they're gonna do in this relationship knowing that this, this man is unavailable. But one of the pieces of feedback that I've gotten that I've been very happy and proud of is that he, as a character, feels complex and rich and accurate, that I'm a woman, but I've written a man well. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And I'm very happy to hear that that's true for those people who think it is. But I think one of the reasons is that I get it. I get what it is to want to prioritize your art over other um, aspects of your life. I was married and uh, my ex-husband was not an artist. And when he would come into the room while I was writing, I was like, what are you doing? You know, so I, I understand prioritizing your art. I also you should have, uh, Laura, you should have done a TikTok. You would have got to number one immediately. Uh, unfortunately, it was pre-TikTok, but I, he was a nice guy. So I'm sure he, and he knew tech a lot better than I did. So I'm sure he would have done that for me. Um, but the other piece is that I, I do understand, you know, I mean, I myself have been in situations where I'm crying over a relationship that's just ended and then some attractive man walks by and I go, oh, who's that? So I understand that, you know, impulse in a character like Circus and in men like him. And so I, I, I do feel that men at least the ones I've been friends with, straight cis men that I've been friends with, never have seen, they see me as someone who understands them and, and doesn't judge them and, and gets them and is kind of like them. I have a lot of camaraderie with my my male friends. Um, have you really given up? I mean, these headlines sometimes are yeah. a bit inaccurate. Have you really given up on love? I've, I've basically just decided that I'm not gonna do anything to try to find it. Um, so things like I'm haven't been on dating apps. I'm not on dating apps. I, I don't go into social situations thinking, oh, am I going to meet somebody and looking for the cute guy in the room? Um, I'm just living my life. And of course, if somebody came along and, um, you know, uh, wanted to, to get together, if I would be open to that, but I'm not doing anything about it. I'm not prioritizing it or working on it or reading books about it. I'm just living my life. Um, and I will admit that I am, you know, I'm getting older and uh, I wouldn't say I'm getting used to it. I, I'm feeling like I'm kind of fine being on my own. Of course, it would be nice to have a partner, but um, things are pretty good otherwise. 
Laura, let's end where we began with education. Um, I joked or half joked uh, that we don't go to school in learning about romance. And your book is uh, a book about educating oneself, I guess, about romance, about mm -hmm. men. Many novels are. Do you think, given that there is no education in romance and perhaps there never will be, do you think that's what many novels are as a the kind of education that we don't get in school or college? I think that's a, an interesting question. And I, I don't think many people think of it that way, but I imagine that it is. I do feel like I didn't set out to write a book to inform women about what these kinds of men are like and what to do, you know, if you, if you come across one, but I do feel like if you are recognizing yourself in a book like this or recognizing yourself in a book that's about romance, about affairs, about whatever else, that hopefully it is going to shape your understanding of why you're making the decisions you're making, why that other person might be doing what they're doing, and where the opportunities to make adjustments uh, might be. While I said I don't write to understand myself, as I said, I do write to understand situations and to work through them. So for example, right now, the next book that I'm working about on is, is about an affair. And I've created a situation that I'm curious about and that I think readers will be invited to think about, if not rethink, their views about love, about romance, about commitment, about what our culture feeds us about romance and the expectations that it, it uh, you know, brings in us. So I do think, you know, books, TV shows, everything that we create as human beings, I think is an effort to understand ourselves and, and the lives that we create and hopefully art and not even, you know, even stuff that's lighter does give us a sense of, you know, why we do what we do and how to move forward. So for sure, I think that's one of the benefits to reading books that are about love. Um, it's also a way to live vicariously uh, and also a way to, uh, I have, you know, I've had a lot of readers, including men, who've had relationships with non-committal, unavailable people and have felt some satisfaction in just seeing their situations on the page. Whether or not they do anything differently when they get to the end of the book remains to be seen, but for sure they see, uh, they see themselves and that's important.